0: If you would turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Um, it is uh, a privilege to be with you guys again. I'm super thankful for our church and thankful for Josh allowing me to come up here and preach every now and then. It's always a super humbling experience, and I'm um, really thankful that, that he gives me the opportunity to do that here. Um, we are in Jonah chapter 3 tonight and we are just going to dive right on in, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll get started. So, uh, starting, We're actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 10, the very, first, very last verse of chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry, upon the dry ground. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Jonah, and God, we pray that you use this inspired word to shape our hearts, allow it to change us, allow it to make us see how exceedingly great you are, allow it to make us see how incredibly sinful we are, and may it help us turn to you and love you. God, we thank you for such a sweet time, and we pray that you bless it and that it be all for your glory. It's in your holy and precious name we pray, amen. So we will set the scene real quick. You guys know the story of Jonah, so it won't take us too long, but Jonah had the word of the Lord come to him. He immediately rose not to go do what God told him, but rather the complete opposite, and he flees um, the Lord, or at least attempts to. He gets on a ship and goes to Tarsh- or tries to go to Tarsus, which is the furthest place that he could have possibly thought of. And on his way there, the Lord hurls a tempest upon the sea. A massive storm rises up, and even the sailors, those who are professional um, sea bearers, they are terrified. And they come to realize, through the casting of lots, that, uh, it's because of Jonah, and Jonah confesses that it's his fault, and he tells them that the only way that they're going to be rescued from this is if they throw him overboard, which they are reluctant to do, and, but he finally convinces him, convinces them, they throw him overboard, the storm stops, and then he is swallowed by a fish. And then when he is swallowed, while he is in there, he kind of cries out to God, um, and it seems like a little bit like maybe the Lord is starting to change his heart. Um, but I think even in his crying out to God, he really just wants to be rescued. He hasn't exactly changed too much. And that's where we find ourselves in, in verse 10. And with Jonah on the dry land, covered in most likely fish nastiness. And um, the word of the Lord is going to come to him a second time. And what is funny about the, Lord coming, the, Lord, the word of the Lord coming to him a second time is it's almost the exact same thing as the word of the Lord that came to him the first time. Um, the point number one that I have here is that the mission hasn't changed, um, but Jonah has just a little bit. If you read in... Uh, Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before, their evil has come up before me. And then here in verse 2 of chapter 3, or verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The mission hasn't changed. God is still calling Jonah to go to the Ninevites and pro- proclaim the message that he gives him. He was reluctant to do it the first time. The first time, what we know about that is that, more than likely, he really just doesn't want some Gentiles to receive the message that he believes belongs with his people Israel. And now, the only difference, and why I say that he's changed a little bit, isn't necessarily that uh, he's had a massive change of heart, but at least now, he is going to be compliant. He's going to be obedient to what the Lord has asked him to do. And we see that right here in verse 3. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So he's made a little progress. He's at least being obedient. Uh, and it seems that he is um, doing that mainly because um, he's, he's come to realize that there is no running from God, and God's going to make him go and proclaim this message to Nineveh, whether he likes it or not. So he's, uh, he's going to be obedient. And then we come to the uh, second part of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. I just want to take a little bit of time to talk about just how great a city Nineveh is. It is absolutely massive for its time. I was, uh, I was reading a little bit and listening to some sermons, um, and from some commentaries I found that... Uh, the number of people that may have been in this city was maybe somewhere close to 800,000 to a million people, which at the time is huge. It's ginormous. And um, one of the other preachers that I was listening to says that um, the size of the city was almost 65 miles in circumference. Again, absolutely huge for the time. And it makes now sense when we read Um, in that second part of verse 3, that it was a three days journey in breadth. To walk across a city that is 65 miles in circumference is a long time. It would take you a long time to walk that. Um, It's so great that even the walls, there's walls all the way around it, and what I read was that as far as width, approximately two to three chariots could go could be put across it. So if they were on top of the wall, they could go around the wall, two chariots, two to three chariots, side by side. Walls are huge. And what we know about Nineveh also is that it is the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians are direct enemies to Israel. They are a hostile and they are a violent people. Even um, non-Christian historians would tell you that, that the Assyrians, especially their military, were absolutely brutal. They were, they were popular and renowned for their violence. So it is not surprising that in chapter 1, Jonah had no desire to go to these people. But we get into chapter 4, or verse 4 rather, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is... Um, a message of judgment. And it's, and it's kind of funny because it seems somewhat inadequate. All he, really, he, all, all he says is that in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. He doesn't necessarily seem to give them an indication as to why. He doesn't necessarily seem to give them an indication as to who's going to do it. Um, the people will eventually realize why and who's going to do it. And it may be that Jonah tells them that later, but all we have right here is this first half, and it's just that they're going to be destroyed in 40 days. Um, but there's some truth in a message of judgment, right? We've we've heard um, somewhat of a message of judgment, and maybe we should hear it more often sometimes, because what the people are going to hear is that they're sinful, and they've been doing a lot of things that are tremendously wrong, so much so that it is come before the Lord and he feels the need to send to them a prophet and and they become terrified. This is the kind of message that they needed to hear. That God is not okay with their sin. It's a message that we need to hear, right? We need to hear and we hear it in the members class when we, when we when we first joined, that God is holy, man is sinful. It's the message that the Ninevites needed to hear. Their sin will not be tolerated before a holy God. God has to condemn sin. He has to judge it. It's who He is. And then we come to uh, this next series of verses, and it's a section that I've kind of titled Revival. Revival. And this, this part of the text is fascinating to me. Starting in verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. Man. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I think when I was a kid, and it might be the same for you all, when you, when you heard the story of Jonah or when you read it, what you were most fascinated by was that this guy, Jonah, was swallowed by a fish, somehow survived for three days, and then got spat back out on the land. That was amazing to me, right? It was super miraculous. It was the thing that fascinated me as a child, But when I was reading through this and studying it again, and as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that that's not the most powerful thing that God does in the book of Jonah. Not even close. The most powerful thing that God does in the book of Jonah is he uses a disobedient prophet to bring an entire city of sinners to their knees in repentance. An entire city. Even with a short, inadequate message of just judgment, right? There is, there is no Jesus for Jonah to preach. He doesn't, he doesn't have that to give to them. He simply is telling them that, look, your sin is bad, and God's going to judge it, and you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. But it's enough that the people of Nineveh believe in God. That's what verse 5 says. And that just amazed me. The, the The physical miracle of Jonah is is awesome, but it is nothing like it is nothing in comparison to god 's ability to work in the hearts of an entire city of unbelievers through the teaching of a, of a disobedient prophet and It was super encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you that when you go out here, when you leave the church. And you're trying to, to share the message of the gospel with the people that, that come into, you come into contact with or you come in or that you see. Um, and you start to wonder or you think to yourself, you know, I, just, I don't know. I feel like I might mess up the message. I feel like I might, be, I might do it injustice. I hope this encourages you to know that it's not about necessarily you. It's about the Word. And the Word, regardless of who's giving it, is powerful. And God can save people through it. One of the things that I was thinking about while I read this too is is one of the things that Josh has talked to me multiple times about is that you know um, it's not always about you know being the being the best preacher. It's the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful and it saves sinners. And as long as that's what we're proclaiming, God can work, and He will rescue people through it. It's so convicting that it even reaches the ears of the king. As verse 6 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth cloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This message is so powerful. It's affected the people so much that it reaches the ears of the king and it convicts him to such a degree that he takes off his robe a symbol of his royalty, and he puts on the sackcloth like everybody else, and he puts himself in ashes. It's a sign of mourning. It's a sign of being at absolutely at your wit's end, which we, we kind of sung right at the beginning of the second song that, that Joe sang, right? When you feel that you're at your wit's end. This is where the king's at, and he, and he tells the people that I'm going to fast. I'm going to give a physical representation with just how sorry I am for my sin and everybody else is going to do it, even the animals. Because we need to display just how sorry we are for our sin. This is amazing. Is, and there's nothing else like it in the entire Bible. For God to work in a city and save or at least convict him of sin, Everybody. Just fascinating to me. Um, And then verse 10, which is uh, one of the most (laughs) encouraging passages to me as well, is when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. Um, This is a passage that I have heard misused before. Um, there are some people who have, who have pulled on this passage to say that God doesn't know the future. That He clearly didn't know whether or not the Ninevites would respond, but He was angry. And when they do respond positively, in repentance, He decides to change His mind, and He's not going to punish them for it anymore. Um. That's untrue. God does know the future. Um, He is not limited to time in the same way that we are. And what he is having to do here is he is responding to a people inside of time and relenting from the disaster that they so deserved. And what I do want to show you is the real point of this verse is to display the heart of God towards repentant sinners. The wrath that they so deserved, which God would bring on them, is due to them, but He doesn't do it to them because they repent. They're repentant. This is the typical response of God towards repentant sinners. It's how He's always operated. Um, I want to pull on a couple different texts, uh, starting with our call to worship that 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 I selected, which you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you or at least a portion of it, is Ezekiel 18, verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and he keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? This is the heart of God. To show mercy and grace to repentant sinners. To give uh, a New Testament example, um, again, you don't have to turn there, but 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God desires for people to come to repentance. He desires for sinners to, to mourn and weep over their sins and repent and, and draw near to Him. And it's a message that you and I can be certain of, because just as it's, it's a little different, but as the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the Word of the Lord has come to us. And it's come incarnate. It's come in Jesus Christ, and He's died for our sins, and by trusting and believing in that, you and I... Don't suffer wrath that we so deserve. God draws us to repentance. And He rejoices in it. Luke 15. There's there's a couple parables in there. And the the two of them are the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And the parable of the lost sheep. When the shepherd leaves the 99 and he finds the one sheep. he He brings his neighbors and he rejoices with them. And Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And in the lost coin, it's a woman who has ten silver coins. She loses one, and she, um, she doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house. She seeks diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God takes joy and pleasure When sinners repent, it's how He's always operated, And we get the perfect picture of repentance in the people of Nineveh. They fall on their knees in ashes and sackcloth and mourning. And God does what He always does. He is merciful and He is gracious and He relents from the wrath that they deserve because they repented. The message of Jonah chapter three for me is, is 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 fairly simple. It's 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 the gospel. God's holy, man is sinful. The people of Nineveh Nineveh realized it, and they responded properly. Full blown repentance, unlike anything else recorded in the Bible, full blown repentance from an entire city to turn to God. And they believed Him is what verse 5 says. And I pray that, that that's our response <clears throat> to our sin. That we would be trusting in Jesus, repenting, because First 1 John 1, 1.9 says He's faithful and just to forgive those sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jonah chapter 3. We thank you that you are a God <coughs> of mercy and grace. <coughs> and You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. <coughs> and we love you for that. God, it is amazing to watch you work in the hearts of an entire city. God, may you continue to work through your word. May we proclaim it to the people we come into contact with. And may their response be the same, God, repentance and belief in God. We love you and we give you glory for what's in Jonah chapter 3. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.